You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer Sermon Podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. As I just mentioned, we are starting the book of Ephesians week two now. And last week we looked at a lengthy introductory section which was a prayer of sorts, a prayer of thanksgiving to God, a a prayer of praise to God, which roots us in our identity. And the prayer continues. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, we will read through verse 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. According to a recent Pew Research poll, 76% of Americans report praying at least monthly. 76% of Americans report praying at least monthly. Now, if you throw in those who pray seldomly, the number gets way higher. Very, very few Americans don't pray at all. Very, very few Americans. Now, a much smaller percentage of that group that reports praying at least monthly would call themselves Christians. Sure, there are a lot of other people who believe in monotheistic faiths of some kind of personal or interactive God who hears prayer, Jews and Muslims especially, but even that doesn't take care of all the 76% who pray at least monthly. There are lots of people who pray, in other words, more than just those who have Christian or monotheistic beliefs. It might be a form of Eastern meditation. It might be a a Catholic form of prayer, like I pray to saints who then pray to God for, for me. That's not what we believe, but there's lots of forms of prayer. It might be that once every 10 year prayer of God deliver me from this unimaginable pain. But most people pray. Now that said, though most people pray, I don't think any person, Christian or otherwise, will get to the end of their life and say, you know what? I prayed enough. You know what? I had all the right priorities in prayer. You know what? I figured prayer out completely. No one's ever going to say that. In fact, I've been at my fair share of deathbeds and no one ever says that. This urge we have to pray, this urge we have to get better at prayer is a very common human impulse. And Paul begins to address that in this passage. 
He starts it out with a, a quick prayer of thanksgiving in verse 16 for the Ephesians, for the fact that they have faith in Christ. And he moves very quickly to it being what we would call intercessory prayer or prayer that God would help the Ephesians in some way. And interestingly, what Paul prays for are not the common things that we pray for, for help in some situation or for more health. Rather, he prays effectively that the Ephesians would get better at prayer themselves, that they would know God, love God, enjoy God more deeply. This is a prayer about prayer. It's meta. That's what the kids say these days. That's meta. So three points this morning about what Paul wants for us in prayer. First is our prayer for knowing God. Second is our prayer for knowing our worth. And thirdly is our prayer for knowing his power. So our prayer for knowing God, knowing our worth, knowing his power. First, our prayer for knowing God. Paul prays in verse 17 that God the Father would give Christians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. This prayer for a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him is not a prayer for saving faith. It's not a prayer that the Ephesians would come to know God in the first place because Paul already gave thanks for that back in 15. He gave thanks that they have faith in Jesus Christ. So he's after something more here. He's after something deeper, a deeper kind of knowledge of who God is. And by that he means a personal knowing that gets deeper over time. Just as you could be friends with someone for decades and still get to know them more deeply over time, or better yet, have shared experiences that help you live life together and become deeper friends together, this is the kind of deeper that Paul is after. In fact, the word in the original language here of knowledge of God is epignosis, which most literally means knowing around someone, knowing their inside and their outside, knowing their front and their back, knowing someone deeply. And the next phrase in verse 18 gets at this a little more when Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, in the New Testament, the word heart does not mean what we generally tend to think of in the English language, especially in America today. When we hear heart, we think romantic love. We think Valentine's Day. We think emotions. And that's not what the word heart usually means in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word heart is really the seat of your will and the seat of your desire as a human person. The most common words like that in, in our American English language today are really your guts, your convictions, and your longings. So when you see the word heart in the New Testament, you should think, ah, oh, what, what are, what are the, the guts, the convictions, and the deepest longings that are being addressed here. And so when Paul prays that he wants us to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, what he means is that your deepest convictions and your deepest longings would get illuminated by God himself such that you would actually see God more for who he is. Those deep desires you have would be fulfilled in God. The prayer is for more God. I want to have more of you, not just more of what you give me, but more of you, God. That would be what would enlighten my heart. 
Now, it immediately strikes me that there are two problems that quickly arise. When we say, really, this is a prayer for knowing more about God, for knowing God more deeply. And the first problem that arises is that so-called Christians don't seem to often live in such a way that they want their deepest desires satisfied in God. This may be why Paul is praying in the first place, because he knows that the Ephesians, or perhaps many of you, don't really want your hearts enlightened with the illumination that God provides with his own presence. You keep God on the surface of your life, and you don't let him penetrate deeply into the depths of your life. And you don't want him more than you'd want a better job, or a bigger house, or the next binge watch on television, the next trip out of town, or more obedient children. Sometimes that's what I want. Or perhaps even your sports team winning. And so how do you get out of that? How do you want to want more? Well, you can't. If you don't want to want more, I can't do it for you, and you can't do it yourself. I think that's why Paul prays here. Because I sometimes think that is our best recourse to saying, the people in my life, I want them to want God more, so God, would you please do it in them? And then there's a second problem that arises, which is that a lot of Christians really do want their deepest desires satisfied in God. They really do want their hearts to be enlightened. They do want the revelation of the knowledge of him to know him deeply and personally. But they don't always know how to do that. A lot of you want your deepest desires satisfied with God, but you don't always know how to do that. So let me give you some help. Because there's an irony to the way to do that. Now, note in verse 17 that Paul's prayer here is passive. It's not we who give ourselves the knowledge of God. It's God who gives it, he says. Paul's prayer is that God would give the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Revelation is also a passive word because we do not reveal things for ourselves. Rather, it is God who pulls back the curtain to let us see a little more of who he is. So the entire force here is passive. What's described here is a passive life, or you might say a receptive life, a life that finds depths in knowing God, but knowing that it's God who gives it, and it's not something we achieve. And so we reach the irony here. How do we receive better? Can you improve at the passive life? Because if you could get better at it, wouldn't you just be being more active by getting better at something that's supposed to be passive? Well, yes and no. I think we can improve at being more receptive or passive to God in our lives, but it's actually very, very hard. I experience this every year on vacation. When I actually have very little to do, I get a little antsy. I want to fill the time. I want to watch a show. I want to take a walk. I want to read a book. I want to work in the yard. The last thing I want to do when I have nothing to do is just to sit still and be with God for 30 minutes. Has that ever happened with any of you? And I remembered when I was on vacation at the end of July this year, uh, this admonition that I'm giving to you right now, and I was sitting on a picnic table at a restaurant, and I just said to God, God, I'm so bad at sitting still with you. I'm so bad at this passive life that I want to want you more. I want the eyes of my heart enlightened. Help me. And so I just felt God... uh, uh, do what he normally does, and he just said, kind of work this out in a poem. So I started writing a poem, and it was a poem about basically how doing nothing and letting God do everything 
really helped me find my deepest joy. And it was really hard because the passive life is really hard. You might notice this antsiness on vacation or a Saturday morning or whenever you have downtime, maybe even just before bed. And perhaps more likely, many of you don't ever let the time go by without trying to fill it. Perhaps many of you are just like, I'm just going to watch Doom Scroll, the next thing on social media. Or I'm going to just call someone. I'm going to go hang out with somebody. I'm not going to let myself have any downtime so that I don't have to face myself or face God. This antsiness is proof that we are not inclined to the passive or receptive life we'd rather do, busying our eyes or our fingers or our bodies instead of stopping to receive. Joseph Piper talked about this in his book, The Leisure, The Basis of Culture. Piper was a philosopher in post-World War II Germany, and he's seeing all this activity in life, and he says, there's a genuine and sinful inability to rest in God. We have a genuine and sinful inability to rest in God. And he says that man mistrusts everything that is without effort, that in good conscience he can own only what he himself has reached through painful effort, that he refuses to let himself be given anything. We mistrust anything that is without human effort. We don't want to be given anything. On the other hand, the true posture of the Christian, Piper says, is one who's just receiving, one who just receives from God and actually gives nothing to him. As the church reformer Martin Luther said 500 years ago, we are beggars, this is true. The gospel bids us to hold the sack open and have something given to us. The gospel bids us to hold the sack open and have something given to us. So how do we grow in, ironically, being more passive? How do we get better at opening the sack and having God give something more of himself to us? How do we grow in that? How do we get more active at being more passive? Well, I think as Piper commended, the contemplative life is a place to start. The contemplative life, Piper says, is one that sits still with the Lord, one that takes any reading, or especially scripture reading, and begins to meditate on it slowly over time. And eventually when you feel your heart getting hot, that's the Lord's presence, and you just dwell on that, and you meditate on that, and you could sit in that for hours. And I think that's very beautiful. And if you have the time to do that on a daily or weekly basis, I wholeheartedly recommend you having a process of contemplation where you meditate on smaller chunks of scripture and you roll them around in your hearts and minds until you sense God's nearness. But the problem with that for many people is that it takes a lot of time. And you might not be in a season of life where you have a lot of time. Maybe there are a lot of demands on your time. Maybe you have lots of children at home. And this is where I think the, the passive life can feel like more work. If you feel like the standard for you is this contemplative life that Piper talks about, but you don't have a lot of time for that, then you just live in a lot of guilt. And that's where I think Martin Luther's suggestion is actually just as helpful. Because Martin Luther said, in contrast to the contemplative life, which isn't available to a lot of people depending on their life circumstance, everyone can practice what he calls the passive life, which is this. With the details of your day, your life, 
your work, your stress, your play, your rest. In the middle of your life, can you invite God into that very moment? Not just at the beginning of the day or not just at the end of the day, but into that very moment and say, God, I'm dealing with this unimaginable stress right now and it's giving me the reminder that I have to rely on you for all things. Or God, I am enduring this beautiful joy right now and I invite you into this because this is a reminder that you have the greatest joy of all prepared for me beforehand. You use whatever detail in your life and you use it as an opportunity for prayer and then you use it as an opportunity for thanks. God, thank you that you've given me this stress that I can know you more deeply. Thank you that you have given me this busyness because you are, you're making my life count. And instead of setting aside all this time, which is still good, if you can do that, please do. But Luther says you invite God into the, the details of your life and you begin to know him more deeply. Now, it's easy to forget to do that. So I'm reminding you here on a Sunday morning, but you should build reminders into the parts of your day that where you can remind yourself to invite God into those parts of your day. So it might, I reluctantly add, you might maybe put a notification on your phone because you guys know I'm kind of anti-phone. But you could, if you're going to use one, you could build a three times a day notification into your phone, which just simply says, invite God into this moment when it just randomly goes off. You might write little prayers written around the pattern of your day. Maybe it's when you get your kids lunch ready. Maybe it's on your car dashboard. Maybe it's written on the stove while cooking. Maybe it's right above your computer screen. Invite God into this moment. In other words, you need to cultivate the habit of passivity so that passivity becomes more instinct. And the more passivity you practice, the more you can acknowledge that God already is near you and you're just becoming more aware of it. And then you can know him more deeply by inviting him into these parts of your day and you let him take the reign and ironically, you'll feel more joy. Now, I can only begin to touch on this. I know I've taken like half the sermon to talk about this, but if you're even just a little bit intrigued, because I can only dance on the surface of this, I encourage you to take that spiritual disciplines workshop that we already announced beginning in two weeks from today because that group of people will actually practice some of these things and learn a little bit more about the passive life together and practice it. We get better at receiving God's grace as we hold our little sacks open. And I emphasize God's grace again because that's our next point. Our prayer for knowing our worth. We can experience more of God, yes. He's also excited to experience more of us. And that's exactly what the final phrase in verse 18 means. The phrase, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, the first time I read that, it read a lot like what we talked about last week in verses 11 and 14, where Paul talks about an inheritance that we are going to get in eternity, that God is going to give us. But that's not what this phrase actually means means. This phrase means something different. Notice that it's not our glorious inheritance, but it's God's glorious inheritance. And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? Or is it just something we're calling God's inheritance now, but he's still going to give it to us? No. It's his glorious inheritance in the saints. That is every Christian. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The inheritance in God's eyes the thing that he, the riches he's going to enjoy forever that's eternal 
is us. That's the riches that God has. In other words, we look forward to enjoying God more, but he looks forward to enjoying us forever too. God finds value in something, you and me, that we might not necessarily think is all that valuable. Wait, I'm the riches in God's eyes? I have that worth in God's eyes? This idea happened to me recently. You see, I'm a very amateur home repair guy. I'm not that great at it, but I have enough tools, I have enough know-how, and I have YouTube, like the rest of you do, which really is helpful. And my son, though, is way more interested. He inherited my father's brain, I think. He's, he's always asking every other second, how does that work? Or how does this work? And I don't know the answer 90% of the time. I'm like, ah, you should just ask Pop that. He'll know the answer, how that works. So when I do have a minor home repair job that I feel like I can do, I invite Davey into that now and help him to help me help him how to figure out something to repair. And very recently, we were repairing some wall fixtures to make sure we could hang them properly. And it was in a really tight space that I didn't have a lot of room to operate. And I realized that all of my nice, big, shiny tools wouldn't get the job done. Now, because Davey's always asking how things work, Last year for Christmas, he got a real tool set that are kid-sized tools. They're not like plastic tools. They can actually get the job done, but they're just much smaller for kids. And I realized, man, that, that little hammer Davy's got would be really useful. And Davy's close to me. He's nearby. And I said, Davy, can you go get your tool set, tool set really quick? I need to use your hammer. And he's like, what? You, you need my tools? <laughs> he got so excited. He, he's like, wait. I have something that's of worth to you? Yeah, yeah, that'd be really helpful, Davey. And I used this tiny little hammer, and I did the job that I needed, and it worked. I feel like that we sometimes have that approach when we think about God, thinking about us. Wait, you think I'm valuable to you? Your riches are way better, God. And God says, no, you are my riches. Do you see then that the way to grow in the passive life or the receptive life is just simply to believe this more and more? When Paul says he wants us to know, don't know deeply at a personal level, all of these things, what he's really saying is the way you grow in your Christian life is learning that it's God all along. It's to need God more, not to become more self-sufficient more. It's to just believe more and more, wait, I'm valuable to God? And may that excitement even just that simple reminder today, spur you in wanting to reciprocate. May that be the motivation to sit in a little more silence with God. May that be the motivation to just want to invite God into the details of our lives. Because when you go, man, God wants to spend every moment with me. Maybe I want to invite him into this moment. He's already present. He just is waiting for you to acknowledge it. Now, finally, let's look at knowing his power. Our prayer for knowing God's power. The last thing Paul wants us to know in prayer with God is his specific power or might, as he says in verse 19. He uses several words that are synonyms, power, might, other things. And then he goes on for several verses, all the way through verse 23, getting specific about what that power looks like. So in verse 20, Paul says that the same power that Paul wants us to know is the power that raised Christ from the dead. And in the latter half of verse 20 into verse 21, it's the same power with which Christ is still ruling. 
visible and invisible powers now and for the age to come into the future. That same power is available to Christians. And in verse 22 and 23, he says that's a power that's been given to the church, meaning all Christians that make up the church so that the fullness of Christ reigns even in the church. Now, this is critical. Don't miss this. Notice how this whole phrase begins. He, he says that we would know the power of God, the, the immeasurable might of God. He is not saying, he is not praying that we would actually have it. I want you to, to grow in the power of God. I want you to have the power of God. No, no, he's saying, I want you to know that you already have it. The power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, I want you to know that you already have it. Do you know that you have that kind of power? Have you ever done one of those go-karts up in Pigeon Forge? You know, there's like dozens of racing places up in Pigeon Forge, if you've ever been. And some of them are kind of lame, where you don't go that fast, and there's a little metal track in the middle, and the cart can't really deviate from it. Kind of like the one at Dollywood, where I could jog faster than the one at Dollywood goes, and it's very important you know that I do not jog very fast. It's pretty lame. But there are others. Some of them are the souped-up kind that can really fly, such that you might think, I had no idea this thing had this much power. And some of them can even go up to 25, 30 miles an hour faster than a human sprinter. The power we have in God's Holy Spirit is a little like that. You have access to way more power than you think. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, but crucially, you don't get to wield it as you want. C.S. Lewis said, the ancients tried to manipulate the world with magic, and now we just try to do that with science. And he compared science with magic, saying it's really just a human pride to want to control the world. And because we have the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, we actually have more power than magic and science, but it's meant and used for a specific purpose. Scripturally, for every Christian, then, this power means that we can't wield it for ourselves, but God will wield it for us someday in our own resurrections, just like Christ was raised from the dead. This power can be, that can be, and God's will, that we may sometimes have the power to pray over someone and heal them. I've certainly been a part of that before. This power may also mean our courage to rule as Christ rules in the church, which is to say humbly with authority. And as we've talked all sermon, the power that God gives us is the power to know him more deeply, more spiritually, in prayer. So what will motivate you to pray in all these ways that Paul prays for you? What will motivate you to want to know God more deeply, to want to know your worth more deeply, to want to know this power more? And it's this. Knowing that your Savior also prayed for you on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He also prays more deeply in being united to the Father. When he trusts the Father so deeply right before his death, when he says, Father, I commit to you my spirit. And even right before the cross in the garden, he prayed that you and I, future believers, would know the Father and that we were one with the Father just as he was one with the Father. When you know that your Savior Jesus was always praying for you, even up until the moment of his death, that he's still praying for you at the right hand of God the Father. You will know the power that raised him from the dead and you will know your worth and you will want to know this God more deeply. Let's pray.
Our Father, as Paul prayed, help us to want to know you more deeply, to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, and and give us the courage or the remembrances to want to do that throughout our daily lives, Monday through Saturday, even in the middle of the day. Reveal yourself to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.